We have come here tonight to show our solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. Because it's because the Cuban Revolution has shown solidarity with us. The Cuban Revolution has opened its doors to those who have had to flee from persecution in the United States. The Cuban Revolution has provided more medical assistance throughout the world than the entire World Health Organization of the United Nations. Brothers and sisters, comrades and friends, I give to you the hero of the struggle of the people throughout the world, Comandante Fidel Castro. It was 1995 when Fidel Castro visited the Obsidian Church in Harlem, New York. He was introduced by the leader of the church, Reverend Calvin Butts. Meanwhile, though, outside of Harlem, the then president of the United States, Bill Clinton, had not invited Fidel to a presidential dinner he was hosting during a series of United Nations meetings. The tension between the United States and Cuban governments didn't begin with Harlem. As many of you know, for over five decades, America's relationship with Cuba has been ice cold, or as we say in some parts of this country, thicker than a snicker. And all of that came to an end, but for a brief moment when in 2014, then President Obama and President Raul Castro began to actually thaw these relationships with one another. In recent months, the American government has reversed course with Cuba, rolling back diplomatic ties and limiting travel for Americans. So on this episode, we're going to talk about what is the deal? What is going on with Cuba and what that means for you? Stay tuned. You tuned into What in the World right here on WERA 96.7 FM and streaming online on WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumia Kinesotu. And in case you're late and you didn't know and you haven't been listening to our other episodes, this show makes global issues understandable and relevant to your everyday life. Over the last couple of years, I've had friends, like many of you all, posting envy-inducing photos of their trips to Cuba. Uh, Some of them have gone multiple times. Well, today's episode, we are going on a different kind of journey, a historical journey through the relationship between Cuba and the United States. Earlier this summer, the current administration reinstated travel restrictions to Cuba. And since then, there's been a flurry of political activities. For those of you who never got the chance to check out Cuba, our conversation should help you get a better understanding of what's happened since June and what the possibilities are for you going in the future, if if at all. Um, our guest today is Dr. Marguerite Jimenez. Uh, Marguerite is a senior associate at the Washington Office on Latin America. Marguerite's expertise includes global health, but she's worked on Cuba topics for the last 12 years in academia, think tanks, nonprofits, and most recently under the Obama administration, where she was the senior policy advisor to the secretary of the Department of Commerce. Marguerite, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. I'm so excited you're here. This is a great topic. We're going to have some fun. So uh, tell us how you got into the field of foreign policy. What brought you to this space? Uh, Music, actually. Oh, So uh, I was a music student as an undergraduate and uh, actually traveled to Cuba for the first time as an undergrad uh, studying hip hop in Cuba. I was very cool back then. And while I was in Cuba, it was a really tense time between the United States and Cuba. Uh, It was during the um, administration of George Bush. And uh, there was a tightening of regulations uh, from the United States onto Cuba. And uh, I realized kind of what a bizarre uh, political world I had stumbled into. And so 
what I thought was going to be uh, my next foray to graduate school to study music ended up uh, shifting towards studying U.S. foreign policy. Uh, actually, while I was in Cuba, I totally switched gears and applied to graduate school uh, from Cuba uh, and ended up in Washington, D.C. studying U.S. foreign policy in about 2004. So how did your parents feel when you told them you were going to Cuba? Uh, so first, my dad was like, you know, okay, I need the number for like a lawyer if we need to get you out of jail. Like, this is no joke. For a while, my father actually carried around a card of a lawyer who did work on Cuba, like just in case it happened. Just happen. in case you got caught up. Right. Because he was like, you know, there's no, there's no uh, embassy. Like, how am I going to get you out? And, you know, I'm his daughter. So this was like very stressful for him. Um, my mom thought it was great. My mom was like, you know, she was worried that she wasn't going to see me, but my mom actually came down and visited. Nice. But once my dad kind of realized that, you know, I had traveled to Mexico and, you know, in Nicaragua. And once my dad kind of realized like Cuba is in fact um, far safer for being a single woman, far safer than Washington, D.C., for example. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's one of the only places that I've traveled in terms of being in a big city where um, where I don't worry about walking around at night or mm-hmm. worry about walking around by myself. So once my dad kind of saw that reality um, or heard about it from me, he, he felt uh, much more comfortable. My mom, as I said, has been think three times now so she's like so she's one of these people who've been multiple times yes unlike me who just dreams yes my mom has been down uh my mom most recently actually came down uh my in my job i took a a congressional delegation down but i was uh i still had my baby and wasn't willing to leave her at home so my mom was like i'll come down and babysit yes so uh, she's been down multiple times (laughs) awesome and so you're you're from you were born in california so we have another west coast person yes so it's been the theme of the last couple of guests uh and you were raised in montana so how did how was the transition from montana to cuba what's that like what Uh, was that like fortunately i had been uh i'd gone to or to undergrad uh before then so it wasn't like straight from montana to cuba it was like montana and then to like Boston and Oregon and Mexico and then uh, and then to Cuba. So I had experienced cities, but it was definitely uh, it was definitely still kind of a shock, especially growing up in Montana, which is, you know, lacking in some uh, ethnic diversity, shall sure, we say? Sure. Uh, being in Cuba. It's pretty homogeneous out in, yes. in Montana. Still being a good place, in, I'm sure, though. Right. Being in uh, being in Cuba for the first time was like, oh, there's all these people that kind of look like me. And Jimenez is not a weird last name. Right. And, uh, so it was definitely uh, a very interesting experience. For later the first on, time. later on, I'll challenge you to help us make Cuba relevant to Montana. Oh, I can do it. Okay, absolutely, oh, awesome, <laughs> totally do it. Okay, great, great. Well, let's just, let's not let's not uh, wait any any longer. So, uh, for generations, there's been a fascination with with Cuba. Um, there's this mystic- mysticism um, about Cuba, particularly for Americans, and I feel like. What we know as Americans when it comes to Cuba is usually symbolic. Like we think, for first of all, Fidel Castro, cigars, you know, um, the old school cars. For me, I love like the movie Scarface, right? So yeah. like I, I replay the early scenes of that movie in my mind. And particularly for African-Americans in this country, um, there's this relationship, this people to people relationship that doesn't exist, for example, at the government level, like mm-hmm. African-Americans, particularly in the United States and really groups around the world sort of have have this friendship with with Cuba um, and and sort of their their position as sort of this anti-Western uh, uh, nation. You know, I I started to wonder about Cuba when well when I lived in East Timor. I started wondering on a deeper level when I learned that they were there um, as doctors um, in East Timor, um, and they had a hospital and they were training uh, the Timorese people. Mm-hmm 
on various medical procedures because they had no medical infrastructure. And I had no idea. I just had no clue that the Cubans were sort of known for their medical excellence. And again, that sort of sparked my interest in wanting to know just a little bit more. How how did Cuba come to be? Like, what are some historic, let's go deeper beyond just like what we know, <laughs> what we see on television or what we read. How did, how did Cuba sort of become Cuba as we know it today? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's really important in understanding, especially modern day Cuba, is that Cuba is has kind of been defined by you know, decades, well, really centuries of this quest for independence. Uh, Cuba has been kind of the prized possession of, you know, whether or not it was Spain or for a very brief period, um, England, um, and then certainly in terms of, you know, the U.S. role on the island. So Cuba, for Cuba, nationalism is a, is a huge theme uh, that runs really, really deep in Cuba's history. Cuba has, uh, has a very kind of mixed, um, ethnically very mixed and diverse uh, population there um, there are descendants of slaves Cuba was a Cuba was a was a very important kind of uh, transition point for for slaves in the Western Hemisphere uh, interestingly there's also uh, I think the Western Hemisphere's oldest Chinatown in Cuba for example Chinese laborers were brought in yeah absolutely and so Cuba is this very um, very ethnically diverse uh, diverse country and very Specifically, since um, since the end of um, the end of the 1800s, Cuba's relationship with kind of larger powers has really defined not not only Cuba since 1959, since the revolution, but also Cuba in that kind of early independence period, where Cuba has always had these kind of ambitions to be independent that have always been. Um, certainly until 1959, frustrated by larger powers. Mm-hmm. So if it was Spain or if it was the United States, and that kind of that kind of uh, you know, the frustrated, frustrated independence goals and kind of frustrated nationalist ambitions have really come to, in many ways, like define how Cuba sees itself. Cuba has always kind of seen itself as playing a larger role than Mm -hmm. a typical small country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when you talk about, um, you know, whether it's sending doctors abroad or Cuba's ambitions for its foreign policy are always kind of as a larger nation might think of itself. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about sort of that relationship with with larger nations. And maybe you can sort of explain what this Cuban revolution was all about. Yeah. So to think, to understand the Cuban revolution, you really need to understand um, the, the Spanish American war. So the Spanish American war goes, goes all the way back to the end of the 1800s. Right. And if you notice the one country that's missing from the Spanish American war is Cuba. Okay. This was actually Cuba's war of independence. So Cuba was fighting to gain independence from Spain and uh, the United States basically intervened in Cuba's war of independence and turned it into a battle between the United States and Spain. And oh, by the way, it was being fought in Cuba. This little country. Right. This little this, country. This little island. Right. Yeah. In Cuba. Right. Uh, called Cuba. And so when um, when the Spanish-American War was actually uh, actually concluded, it was the American flag and not the Span- and not the Cuban flag that was uh, raised above Cuba's um, Cuba's capital. So this is like. This is a fundamental uh, piece of Cuba's kind of history and relationship, especially with the United States. Cubans feel like their independence were, was basically stolen from them mm-hmm. uh, by the United States. So all of these kind of frustrated nationalists and frust- uh, frustrations about kind of uh, U.S. intervention on the island uh, built up leading to 1959. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just the relationship with the United States, but also, you know, Cuba was a hugely unequal country uh, prior to 1959. 
And uh, there were great divides between um, Cubans who lived in urban areas and Cubans who lived in rural areas. Mm -hmm. Cuba was totally dependent on, um, they call it a monocultural economy, right? So Cuba was totally dependent on one main export, which was sugar. Sugar. Uh, And so Cuba's economy was kind of dominated by U.S. interests. uh, And the inequality that existed on the island, uh, people were growing frustrated with that. Uh, and there was also a series of kind of U.S. meddling in elections in Cuba. So the United States... You don't know anything about that. Yeah, right. Uh, the United <laughs> States, uh, you know, basically supported dictators in Cuba. Uh, so when we talk about... I mean, this is important to understand. When we talk about, like, a normal relationship with Cuba, it's important to remember, like, we've never had a normal relationship mm. with Cuba. So there's not, like, some, you know... A uh, great example of Cuban democracy we can go back to, or some experience where Cuba and the United States treated each other as equals that we can go back to. We're in totally uncharted territory here. Right. And so 1959 comes around is when we sort of know that Fidel Castro overthrows a previous leader who was more friendly to the United States, business friendly to the United States. And, you know, I see old pictures of like older folks in Cuba and the old school cars, and yeah. you see the businesses and the casinos and all these, this wonderful time, right? But at the same time, before Fidel Castro, like you said, there was inequality uh, in the in the in the country, uh, and so Fidel Castro comes in 1959, overthrows the previous president. He's more in line with uh, uh, communist um, ideologies. The United States sees this as a threat. So, can you help us connect Fidel Castro's sort of world of communism, as we term it, and sort of the United States's understanding, um, or at least the United States's position in the world at that time with dealing with the Cold War. Yeah, so when um, when Fidel Castro came to power, I mean, one of the things that's important to, to think about is, so when he came to power, it was, it was a really broad social movement, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, this wasn't just a... Uh, kind of top-down imposition of, you know, this was not a military coup. Okay. This was a really broad social, you know, social revolution where that had a coalition of um, of supporters behind it. Right there was there were, uh, you know, there was a whole urban guerrilla movement. There were even some of the some of the middle classes who felt like their interests would best be served. Uh, not by communism or socialism, but by a more nationalistic regime. So when when Fidel Castro did take power in 1959 and his kind of band of revolutionaries took power in 1959, they weren't initially, this wasn't a communist revolution. This was a social revolution. Right. And so, you know, and it, and it gradually became, uh, not so gradually, but uh, it became clear that uh, that Castro had these kind of socialist or communist leanings. But this was really about like agrarian reform. It was about lifting people out of poverty uh, and the United States didn't really understand that. The United States um, saw Cuba's kind of very, uh, very kind of in-your-face nationalism as a threat. And especially as Cuba became closer to the Soviet Union, right. this was increasingly seen as Cuba had to be a threat to the United States. Right. When initially that that was really not the case. I think, um, you know, it's hard to hard to think, you know, what would have happened if the United States had behaved differently or Cuba had behaved differently. But, um, but you know, that what Cuba was kind of pushing for were not goals that were unfamiliar in the region. There right. were other governments who were, you know... Who were doing just the absolutely, same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the United States 
had was nervous about these kind right. of revolutions. Right. And that nervousness played out in sort of a few different m- critical milestones. We know, for example, the Bay of Pigs. Yep. Um, and then there was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so can you just briefly just talk about what those two things are? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> what, ha- what happened? Right. <laughs> Let's see. Briefly talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and 140 characters. Of right. Okay. Let's see. Um, so in the what happens in 1959 is um basically a kind of a, a gradual escalation of tensions between Cuba and the United States. And this is mostly linked to um, nationalization of U.S. property uh, on the island and the United States kind of trying to um, impose its will on Cuba. So the relationship is kind of defined by this like tit for tat of mm-hmm. Cuba to something the United States responds. The um, With the Bay of Pigs, basically the United States... Uh, viewed it as being viable to invade Cuba. And it was this was training Cuban exiles right. who would go back and invade the island. And then basically they would plant the flag and then the United States would come and, and come to the rescue. And, and these 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 um, folks that they were training, they were Cubans. Um, they were more sort of they were more in line with democratic sort of ideals or were they who were these people? I would say more so than democratic ideals, because I don't want to give them too much credit on okay. that front. Okay. I think they were more in line with the previous government. They had. OK, been, so they had been dispossessed of ah. their property. They were and understandably, they were angry, right? They were pissed you know. off that they lost their stuff. Right. Absolutely. And that's to- that's totally understandable. Um, you know, again, Cuba pre-1959 was not like some democratic paradise or anything. Cuba was run, you know, by the mafia, by corrupt government. There was extrajudicial killings. The United States was supporting the Cuban military. It was not a not a happy place pre-1959. But so this um, this paramilitary group invades and is basically blown out of the water by the Cuban military. There was nothing about this invasion that went as planned, mm-hmm. right? And there's, you know, there's all sorts of examples and, you know, they do case studies. I, I teach a case study on this, uh, whereby you kind of have to look at, like, at what point should the president at that time have maybe said, mm, we probably shouldn't do this. There's right. no chance we're going to win. Right. And indeed, it was an enormous failure. Um, um, many of the um, the members of the uh, paramilitary brigade were arrested. They were um, kept in prison for uh, over a year. This was a resounding victory on on the part of Cuba uh, and the Cuban the Cuban government under Fidel Castro. And it kind of shored up popular support because right. Cuba was able to say, look, look, we really are under attack. Right, right. Um, and they're pretty close. Like the United States, like the, the, everybody knows, we're 100 miles apart. Right. So it's like this is a real, this isn't just like a threat, like right. lowercase t. This right. is like... They have the capacity to get here pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And it also it also empowered the Cuban government to kind of curtail the liberties of citizens, right? I mean, we've seen this in this country as well after, you know, after 9-11 of when, when people get nervous, uh, it, it kind of empowers the government to take steps that they might otherwise not be able to take. They go to the extreme. Absolutely. And so the Cuban government was able to kind of say, we're under siege, we're under attack, here are the things we need to do. We can't hold elections. We can't do this, that, and the other because, you know, we're, we're facing this very real and legitimate threat from the United States. Okay. Um, so then we have the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? The- <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so the Cuban Missile Crisis, similarly, uh, you know, this is, again, when we think about, like, why Cuba mattered so much. There was a time when there were missiles from the Soviet Union pointed basically at the United States. Uh, this was when when we think about Cuba as being kind of like... Um, a proxy whereby the United States and the Soviet Union were really fighting and using Cuba as kind of a, mm-hmm. a chip in their mm-hmm. game. This should sound really familiar to the United States fighting Spain right. and you know using Cuba as kind of a, a tool of convenience. Um, 
what happens similar to in, in Cuba's um, kind of crushed war of independence is that ultimately the United States and the Soviet Union avoid you know, catastrophe by negotiating to remove the missiles and they let Cuba know after the fact. So once again, Cuba is kind of brought into uh, brought into things uh, after a decision by superpowers has al- already been reached. Right. So that just kind of reinforces Cuba's feelings of kind of uh, quashed, you know, nationalist ambitions. Right. And if I were Cuba or if I were leading Cuba, I'd be like, man, here here we are again. Right. Um, sort of being sidelined mm-hmm. by powers. It doesn't matter if they're democratic, communist, whatever the label we want to put on. It's like, we just want to like chill, be ourselves, take care of our people, participate on the global stage, trade, whatever it is. I mean, that's how I would approach it. We want to be independent. We want to be independent, but yet we're we're constantly being used by almost like a tool um, by either the United States or another country, Russia or, well, the Soviet Union at that time, right, to sort of um, sort of prop up their own political agenda right right and so right. i could totally understand where a leader might be like you know what i'm just gonna i'm gonna draw my line in the sand <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and this is how this is how we're gonna operate going forward yep. and so that makes total sense to me um this is probably um a good place to talk about guantanamo bay um, yes. because we had a listener leave me a wonderful message uh mr mo kelly pelamoco out of virginia Let's just take a second to listen to Mo Kelly's question about Guantanamo. And, you know, Marguerite, give us, you know, your take on on Mo Kelly's question about why we're still in Guantanamo and what what is going on. This is Mo Kelly Palamoco. And my question is, I understand that Guantanamo Bay lease was signed before the Castro regime. And I believe the lease is going to be running out Um I, be, I think this 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 century, if I'm not mistaken, assuming that the current U.S.-Cuban relations don't improve, what's going to happen when the lease uh, is lease expires? Um, what I'm always been what's always struck me about the the Guantanamo Bay lease is that fact that you know obviously the U.S. and Cuban and Cuba that did not have diplomatic relations, yet United States still had a base there. It's almost as if North Korea had a base in like Arizona. Uh, so to me, it's always been like a like a symbol of like American might, and to a certain extent, you know, America has been kind of been giving you know Cuba the middle finger. It's like here we are, we're enemies, but yet we have a military base in your country. Thank you, Marguerite. Uh, answer Mo Kelly's question for us. So one, when is this lease with Cuba supposed to end? And two, why are we still in Guantanamo Bay? Why do we still have a presence there? It's a great question. So um, the lease that gives the United States access to Guantanamo Bay actually dates back to the um, dates back to the Platt Amendment, which is signed in Cuba as kind of a condition of Cuba gaining independence. Remember when we talked earlier about um, the Spanish-American War and the United States basically occupying Cuba? The only way that Cuba was able to secure independence was by signing what's known as the Platt Amendment. So the Platt Amendment gave uh, the United States uh, access to Guantanamo and was a lease that both Cuba and the United States had to sign. 
And what the lease basically says is that unless both parties agree to it, the United States has access to the um, to the naval base at Guantanamo in, in perpetuity. So the lease is actually not going to expire. And uh, and the Cubans obviously have wanted um, have wanted to reclaim you know their territory for for decades. And this has been a huge point of contention between the United States and Cuba, especially after um, you know the United States started doing all sorts of uh, really questionable, shall we say, things mm-hmm. uh, on the base related to human rights violations after the military um, prison was opened there. You're talking about the the, the af- just after 9-11, yep. uh, the v- videos and the pictures we saw of the prisoners being tortured. Yeah, absolutely. And this became a huge sticking point for uh, for Cuba because Cuba's uh, Cuba's perspective was basically like, you know, you can't you can't justify doing these you know, committing these gross human rights violations on your own soil. So you're committing them on ours. And how how can you, the United States, accuse us of having such a terrible human rights record when look what you're doing uh, in Guantanamo? In Guantanamo. So we're yeah. sort of in this, like, standstill with Guantanamo until both parties say... We're done with this. Yeah, absolutely. And something that's important to note there is even uh, even like President Obama, right? Or when President Obama talked about closing down the military uh, the military prison, he never once talked about giving the uh, giving or turning the territory back over to Cuba. So even Democrats, that's like uh, that's a really really contentious issue. A lot has happened uh, since the uh, incoming uh, administration, and uh, in June, well, let's back up. So since President Obama eased travel restrictions. A lot of people um, have gone back to Cuba for fun, for pleasure. We've seen businesses start to open up in Cuba. Um, And it seemed like, you know, uh, it was a great time for Americans to learn more about Cuba. And we talked earlier in the show about, you know, having just a deeper understanding about Cuba's history, the people. You talked about their ethnic um, background and the diversity and their people and their linkages to slavery. Like there's just a whole bunch um, that people had had the opportunity to learn about Cuba. Um, But in June, the Trump administration, uh, we learned that that they would be restricting access once again. And uh, on June 16th, which happened to be my birthday, um, uh, the president dropped this memo presidential memo outlining sort of the new way forward with uh, Cuba. And what I want to do for our listeners is just to pick apart three elements that I think are really interesting. And Marguerite's going to just talk us through what they mean. And there's a lot in this policy memo or in this this memorandum. We're not going to go through all of it. I encourage you all to do so. But let's start with the Libertad Act. So I'm going to read a segment, just a small piece of this um, th- this memo. It says that it shall be the policy of the executive branch to support the economic embargo of Cuba described in Section 47 of the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act of 1996, known as Libertad, the embargo, um, including by opposing measures that call for an end to the embargo at the United Nations and other international forums and through regular reporting on whether the conditions of a transition government exists in Cuba. And Marguerite, we had some news uh, come out just uh, last week, well, at the time of this show, it was last week, uh, talking about the United States position on the embargo. Um, and this was ha- this happened at the U.N. So tell us first about what the uh, Libertad Act is and update us on what happened at the U.N. 
Yeah, so the key pieces about um, about Libertad, which is also known as Helms-Burton, are basically, uh, you know, the things listeners need to understand is that it codifies the embargo, which was put in place in uh, in the early 1960s in kind of piecemeal fashion. It codifies the embargo into law, which essentially says that um, no U.S. president can actually do that much around, around the embargo, but the embargo, in fact, has to be lifted by an act of Congress. So this is really, this is really tricky, right? Getting uh, bipartisan support to basically uh, repeal the embargo. Um, another thing that uh, that Helms Burton does is it makes it really difficult. It it focuses a lot on what they call um, trafficking and basically confiscated property. So so when we spoke um, earlier about how you know one of the sore points between the United States and Cuba was the nationalization of property owned by uh, owned by either American companies or. Cubans at the time who then went to the United States and are now part of the Cuban-American community. So nationalized property was a really big issue. So one of the things that um, Helms-Burton does is it gives people essentially, it punishes people who do business in uh, with this kind of trafficked property. So for example, um, where you can see this uh, really clearly and kind of how the punishment manifests itself is um, a Canadian mining company, it's called Share It. Uh, does a lot of um, a lot of work in Cuba in terms of extractive industries, nickel um, nickel extraction, and so um, the the Canadian company has basically been accused by the United States of trafficking and confiscated property. So that some of the uh, some of the property where the um, where Sherit uh, does its nickel extraction may have been owned or was once owned mm-hmm. by either an American company or an, or an American citizen, and so. As a kind of repercussion for that, the United States, under Helms-Burton, denies entry to uh, senior officials within Sherrod. So Canadian citizens who whose only crime is basically being... Uh, being, you know, a CEO of Sherit, right, right. are, no, are not allowed under Helms-Burton to enter the country. And this can be their family members as well. So wow. it's this totally nonsensical kind of extraterritorial element um, element of Helms-Burton. Helms-Burton is also really focused on promoting a democratic transition on the island. So it basically codifies this idea of regime change into U.S. law. And when the Trump announcement uh, on June 16th, one of the most significant things about it was that it basically you know, whereas President Obama had kind of said, you know, we're no longer in the business of regime change. We don't think the embargo has worked, but only Congress can do something about the embargo. What the Trump administration basically did was say, you know what, we're actually going to go back to the embargo. We're Mm -hmm. actually going to double down and we're going to support the embargo publicly and privately. And this issue of the United Nations, we're going to support the embargo at the United Nations, even though for the past like 25 years, no one votes with the U.S. on this issue. Except for one country. Right. Israel always votes with the United States. And then there have been like a handful of other countries over the years where it's like the nation of Palau, right? So these like really small and not to denigrate Palau by any means, but it's like it's there are no other large powers who are voting right. with us on this issue. And and most recently this um, under the Obama administration, it was a really politically significant move for the Obama administration for Ambassador Power to basically to abstain. So she, uh, under the uh, under the embargo, she couldn't vote. Um, she couldn't vote with the rest of the world, mm-hmm. but she could abstain. The and United States is, could abstain. This, this is was, Ambassador Power, uh, Samantha yeah. Power, who was the uh, the UN ambassador for yes, the United States. That's right. Yeah. And so now Ambassador uh, Nikki Haley, basically, um, when the UN voted as it does every year this past week. Uh, 
the U.S. basically returned to its old position again, doubling down on uh, on support for the embargo and once again kind of being out of favor. So that's 191 countries to two, mm-hmm. uh, which, it, you know, it's just further kind of evidence of how isolated the United States is in our foreign policy towards mm-hmm. Cuba. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's go to the second part of, of this um, policy. So what or who is Gaesa? Gaesa. Let me just read the the section very quickly so that everyone has context about what Gaesa is. So uh, this is talking about the implementation of this policy, and it says, as part of the regulatory changes described in this subsection regarding implementation. The Secretary of State shall identify the entities or sub-entities as appropriate that are under the control of or act for or on behalf of the, the Cuban military, intelligence or security services or personnel such as GAESA, its affiliates, subsidiaries and successors and publish a list of those identified entities and sub-entities with which direct financial transactions would disproportionately benefit such services or personnel at the expense of the Cuban people or private enterprise in Cuba. So help us out. What is What does all of this mean? So basically, uh, you know, in a, a very short and dirty version of this is, is the, the Trump administration basically wants to deny any source of uh, resource and revenue to the Cuban government, right, and to the Cuban military. And so the way that the Trump administration um, conceived of doing this was to prohibit uh, the United States from doing business with anything linked to the military. Well, this is this is really problematic for a number of reasons, right? So the Trump administration is basically asking or tasking the State Department with coming up with this like uh, this kind of blacklist, essentially, of businesses that have anything to do. As as you read that section, it's really complicated, right? So it's it's businesses that have anything to do both indirectly and directly with the Cuban military. Well, since the early 1990s, the Cuban military, because it's a trusted organization, it is known for being, you know, an efficient organization and good at management and administration. The the military in Cuba has has basically been uh, in charge of overseeing the tourist industry, among many, many other industries on the island. And this isn't like you walk into a Cuban hotel and you're greeted by, you know, your bellhop as a member of the military. It's not like that. It's it's that the military, through this kind of large holding company known as Gaesa, mm-hmm. the military is involved, kind of uh, in the background of some of the uh, of the higher level administration. So more management, not yeah. necessarily like directly delivering or, services or day to day, right? Exactly. And so and so, what the State Department has been tasked with doing it's this hugely complex process of deciding, well, what does directly benefit mean, and what does disproportionate benefit mean? Because, for example. Um, if you go to Cuba on a legally um, licensed trip and you're thirsty, so you go into one of these kind of little 7-Eleven type stores and you buy a bottle of water. Well, at some point, that store that you've entered is probably affiliated with the Cuban military. And so the question to the State Department and to the other enforcement agencies involved, which the State Department's not an enforcement agency, but um, but the Office of Foreign Assets Control, for example, at the Treasury Department is. So the question is, are you know, is is the Treasury Department going to be put in a you know pretty untenable position of having to actually monitor and enforce whether or not legal legal travelers are mm-hmm. buying water right. at a store that at some point you know is somehow connected right to it's, 
this group or right. to, this or, to the organization. Right. This, I mean, it's an, it's, it's an absurd task. And the, and the military is also, um, this group, Gaesa, is also involved in, uh, you know, in hotels in, in the old part of the city. So there's all sorts of areas or the, the Mariel Free Trade Zone, this kind of new economic development zone in Cuba. The military is linked to all sorts of things, uh, both directly and indirectly. So it's basically, what it's going to do is it's going to create uncertainty for U.S. businesses who mm-hmm. are interested in doing business mm-hmm. on the island. Uh, and I think, you know, honestly, that's one of the intentions of the Trump administration right. is to create this uncertainty and to kind of make it more difficult for uh, business to function and, uh, between the two countries. And so is the issue that the military is the perspective that the military um, is violating some sort of human rights or that they're violent or what is actually the problem that we see or that the administration sees with the Cuban military specifically? You know the the um, the issue with the Cuban military. I'm you know I don't I won't presume to understand how the Trump administration thinks, but uh, the idea basically is that you know it's a Cuba's a military state, and you know the the extent to which that's actually true is really debatable. Um, you know the the idea that the Trump administration kind of puts out there is that you know Cuba is just another North Korea but in the Caribbean. Mm, gotcha. you know, that's that's factually not the case, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the image that they're putting out there. And so the idea is to you know to cut off all this revenue um, without the recognition that you know there's not a huge private sector in Cuba. So mm-hmm. it's not as though if they cut off revenue to the Cuban military, all of a sudden it's you know all of the investment is going to go through the private sector. It's simply going to go through another part another of the Cuban part. state. Yeah, got it. All right. So the last part that that many people um, are more familiar with and that um, is probably most relevant is this idea of person to person travel or people to people engagement. And the section of the memo um, issued on June 16th says that um, the amended regulation shall require that educational travel be for legitimate educational purposes and all such travelers must be accompanied by a representative of the sponsoring organization. It further goes on to say that um, if you go to Cuba, essentially, for uh, non-academic education purposes, um, you must engage in a full-time schedule of activities that enhance contact with the Cuban people, support civil society in Cuba, or promote the Cuban people's independence from Cuban authorities, and meaningfully interact with the individuals. Marguerite, explain now what this means for people who want to travel to Cuba. What is, so does this mean you've got to like put together an itinerary and list out who you want to go talk to about democracy? What does this actually mean? So um, under the Obama administration, there was a pretty significant change in the travel regulation. So there have, there's, for the past decade, there have been these kind of 12 categories of certified, of, of authorized travel. And what the Obama administration did at the end of the administration was to basically um, to try and increase the number of Americans traveling to uh, to Cuba and to try and make that easier. The um, Obama administration basically said, we're going to allow individuals to do what they call self-certify, to basically say, uh, I, as an individual, am going to certify that I'm on a people-to-people trip. Mm-hmm. And there, wasn't, there weren't a lot of additional requirements. In fact, there were no additional requirements. You just had to um, you as an individual had to, you know, you were legally liable for that, but you didn't have to present an itinerary. You didn't have to report back on your trip. And so 
now what the Trump administration has done uh, is to basically say, okay, you can no longer do this self-certification. You have to travel as part of a group and a group that has a license. And there has to be this full itinerary of, you know, visits, uh, cultural um, cultural site visits, things like that. The reason why this is really problematic, um, or one of the main reasons this is really problematic, is what we saw after the Obama administration made these changes and allowed more individuals to travel was all of a sudden you had Americans who were traveling down there, and Americans, because they're not allowed to go as tourists, which means they weren't going to these like all-inclusive resorts, mm-hmm. they were traveling to Havana, and they were staying in people's homes. Mm-hmm. They were patronizing the Cuban private sector, and they were having conversations about like, you know, freedom of expression and they were having conversations about, you know, the economy and politics and really engaging with the Cuban people in a way that group travel is just not as conducive to that. Mm -hmm. And so what this is, what the Trump administration and what the new regulation is going to do is basically force people to travel in bigger groups, which means they won't be staying in the Casa Particular, they Mm -hmm. won't be staying in an Airbnb, they won't be, it will be harder for them to eat at some of these smaller Mm -hmm. um, paladars, which are the private restaurants. And it's going to push them back into these kind of uh, large and more uh, more kind of formal settings. Mm-hmm. And it's going to really, it, you know, we're already seeing the impacts. It's already hurting the Cuban private mm-hmm. sector. And, it, you know, when you talk about that, it reminds me of just like how I started the beginning of this conversation about, you know, wanting to make sure that we go deeper in our understanding of Cuba and for a lot of Americans, the extent of Cuban knowledge are movies like Scarface and the images of the cigars and the images of Fidel Castro with a cigar in the Bronx, for example, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's very, very surface level. And so this sort of brings us back to that sort of basic level understanding of Cuba. Um, and it, it, it sort of, in a way, increases the mysticism again. It just sort of leaves your imagination wondering, like, what is it like there? Yeah, absolutely. It, w- it will reduce the kind of really legitimate, I don't want to say legitimate, but the really genuine yes, and yes, uh, yeah. and kind of authentic yes. uh, exchanges people have on a one-to-one level. Exactly. And it'll, t- it'll bring everything back to this level of like the groups, which is, it's still a great way to travel right, in groups, right. but, uh, but it basically punishes the very people that the Trump administration has claimed it's trying to support. Right, right. And so, and speaking of, you know, punishment, I, the, when I think about how and why this administration is working the way it, it does, um, I, I think there are multiple ways to address um, issues with people who you, who you don't agree with. Right? You can you can sort of cut them off completely. You can send somebody to go talk to them um, and say, hey, you know, help me work this out with, you know, Marguerite. She, uh, you know, threw some trash on my lawn and <laughs> I'm not feeling that. Uh, or, you know, I can go to you directly, knock on your door and say, can we have a conversation about your trash that you're throwing on my lawn and uh, how we can make sure it doesn't happen again? Is there a reason, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, can you say, can you just give thoughts, you know, are there arguments to justify, you know, um, reason that the administration might feel so um, strongly about the way that it's it's approaching Cuba right now? There are definitely reasons why they feel that way. The question is, uh, you know, do I agree with them? Obviously, no. Uh, <laughs> it's the short answer. And a lot of people don't, frankly. But, right. Yeah. Is, is the short answer. You know, I think we can also just look to history of like, you know, when 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 we've tried the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, this is a policy that has lasted for like 50 plus years, right? And we've tried the same thing over and over again, and it hasn't it hasn't advanced U.S. interests in either on in Cuba or in the region, quite frankly. 
you know, uh, the, uh, the opposite is true. It's made the United States look bad. It's become kind of a thorn in our side in terms of like our, our relationships with the rest of the Western Hemisphere. It also hasn't advanced what we in the United States have claimed are our interests in Cuba in the term in terms of like advancing either any sort of individual liberty or uh, economic improvement on the island. It has not done anything to improve the lives of Cubans. And so right. you have to, you know, you'd think that like rational humans would look at this policy and say, huh, it's been in place for 50 years, right. hasn't accomplished any of the things that we set out for it to accomplish. Maybe we should reevaluate. Right. And so the fact that people are kind of doubling down should tell you that like there's something else going on here because, you know, it, it's not being rationally evaluated. It's not, this is not a logically driven policy. The right. fact that you have a lot of Republicans who are against this policy right. simply because it hasn't worked. So, uh, you know, just thinking purely competitive, right? Um, I, I used to play sports and, you know, you try to do what you can to make sure you you beat your deponent, your opponent or at least remain on par with your opponent. And Europe, they're an ally, but they're also a competitor, right? Mm-hmm. To some degree. And Europe, uh, European countries are, going to Cuba. Um, They're setting up businesses in Cuba. Their people are traveling to Cuba. Um, Businesses, like, they're heavily involved. And it would seem to me um, that Cuba actually doesn't need the United States because they've got the rest of the world, African countries, other Latin American countries, certainly Caribbean countries, European countries, Asian countries. Everybody's already sort of working in in this island. So do they need us for anything? Why? Yeah. So need and want, different things. Yes. Uh, So obviously, you know, what Cuba's really good at is confrontation with the United States uh, and has, you know, gotten really good at it over the past 50 years. Uh, and in terms of from an economic standpoint, right, like Cuba has developed other trading partners and, and they certainly have over the decades. The thing with the United States is, one, it's proximity, right? So so Cuba is a cash-strapped country. And so you have to imagine, like, would it be easier and more cost-effective for Cuba to import rice from Vietnam or from the United States? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's really economically very problematic for Cuba to be cut off from its its closest, closest and kind neighbor. of most logical trading partner. Right, right. Um, and just in terms of like U.S. businesses, you know, um, there there's all sorts of kind of natural uh, natural connections that could be made and like Cuban Americans who own businesses in the United States who want to invest on the island. So there's all sorts of there's all sorts of kind of natural connections where does Cuba need the United States? No. Would it be a lot more convenient if if Cuba had access to the United States and if there wasn't an embargo? Absolutely. Right. Right. And uh, er- earlier we talked about Montana uh, and and what this means for folks in Montana. So <laughs> if you had to tell them, you know, a farmer or someone in Montana why they should care about this situation, what would you say to them? So in Montana, I would say, you know, there's there's a couple different issues. One is like it's just it's a new market, right? So uh, for small farmers or for farmers in Montana who are uh, who need new markets and who want to, you know, export their their goods freely, uh, you know, to be told by the United States government that you can't send to this one country based on this kind of, uh, you know, decades old, ineffective, kind of nonsensical policy, that would be that would be kind of a front to mm-hmm. me if I were a farmer in Montana. And there's also one of the issues that that in Montana I think is important is and for a lot of Western states is this issue of states' rights. Is like why on earth uh, and this is not 
you know, my personal opinion, but this is kind of the the perspective there is like, why should the federal government be telling them who they can and cannot sell their products to? Mm. And so, uh, you know, Cuba's a natural market. It's not a huge market, but, you know, Cuba imports $2 billion worth of, uh, worth of food every year. Why shouldn't the grain growers of Montana be able to, you know, tap into that market right. and be able to access uh, that Cuban market? Right, right. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot to consider. Um, and thank you for making that relevant. I, I hope uh, our listeners see uh, this. We just talked about that in pure economic terms. There's the whole aspect of the cultural benefits, I think, in the cultural exchange in in the two groups, um, you know, finding each other and learning about each other. Um, and I, I wish we could find a way forward. Um, I'm not sure in the current administration we'll see much change, but hopefully um, in years to come, we can look forward to a more productive relationship with the island and think through how we can actually like, you know, live together as peaceful neighbors, uh, as, as some have described it. So um, in true fashion, uh, Marguerite, we end the show uh, on a high note, on a positive note with a, a song, your outro that keeps you in a good mood. And so tell us the song you picked and why. Uh, I picked Stevie Wonder's Overjoyed uh, because I think it is impossible to be grumpy listening to uh, listening to Stevie sing about being overjoyed. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> great selection. Great pick. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode of What in the World. Um, you can catch us online at WERA.FM. We are also on Facebook at What in the World Podcast. You can listen to other shows like this on Mixcloud.com slash What in the World Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at WITW Pod. Thank you, Marguerite, again for joining us um, to talk about this very serious topic. I'm sure we'll have you back um, and maybe there'll be multiple parts to Cuba. Who knows? Um, But it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah.